If you missed our morning services, Adam is the senior pastor of Dunedin Elam Church, uh, an amazing man of God, been leading that church for close to 10 years, is it like eight years or something like that? Uh, and he's also got two master's degrees in theology and a doctorate in theology. And he's currently studying for his third uh, master's in Islamic studies. This guy is just an absolute machine. He's uh, an intellectual, he's a theologian. He really does carry uh, such a strong gift uh, as a voice for our movement in things theological and apologetics and all kinds of areas of Scripture. And he's just a great friend. He is a, a really a great and powerful voice. I think in our time in our generation right now, we need uh, a new generation of theologians and thinkers. And so uh, Adam is a phenomenal friend, a great leader, doing a phenomenal work down in Dunedin. And it's our joy to have him tonight. He's answering a question tonight. The question is, why do bad things happen? And this is a little teaser for our series we're doing in two weeks time called You Asked For It. We're gonna try and answer a whole bunch of questions that you guys have asked us to answer. And this is just a little teaser to get you guys ready for that. So church, can you do me a favour? It's his fourth time. Let's stand to our feet. Let's welcome to the stage, Dr. Adam Dots. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Let's just, uh, as we take our seats, can we give one for Jesus? Come on. Yeah, come on. You're awesome, Lord. Come on. Yeah. Man. Jesus is so good. Well, it's a real privilege to be here with you. As Steve said, my name is uh, Adam Dodds. I, I live in Dunedin. Uh, love living down there. Uh, just, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's God's own country. And uh, I hear that he also moves in Auckland, which is really cool to hear. Um, but I mean, as Steve introduced me as Reverend, I, I, I thank you, Reverend Steve, uh, for introducing me in that way. <laughs> Uh, all good. Uh, I have three children and one wife. And I'll, uh, if we have the pictures ready, I'll show you a picture of my wife and I. That's my wife, Kylie. She's a Bay of Plenty girl. And then my three boys, or our three boys, I should say, uh, Elias, Micah, and Peter. That was on their first day of school this year. Um, the cheeky one in the middle is Peter. He's three. And his hair has been cut, so he looks a bit older, but he's just as cheeky. I don't know where he gets that from. His mum says he gets it from me and... Well, wives are always right. So there we are. But yeah, real privilege to be a dad. I just, I love what I do. And, and tonight is a, is a tricky question. It's a tricky question. Why do bad things happen? It's a, just, a, just a small question, eh? Like, <laughs> I've got a teaching on this. It's probably about an hour and a half long and it, it's not comprehensive, although it does try to be. So to try and do something a little bit shorter time, just bear with me. This isn't gonna be a thorough teaching. It's just gonna be one swipe at the subject. And I do hope it is of some help to you, so feel free to take notes on your little sheet that also has uh, some of my notes on it as well. I am indebted to Greg Boyd for this message. I've borrowed some stuff from him. He's a theologian, pastor, and author uh, in the States. And if anyone's really keen on looking into the subject in more detail, I recommend his book, Is God to Blame? Greg Boyd, Is God to Blame? I think it's the best book I've read on this subject. I believe tonight will be both theological and practical, and I warn you, it may also be emotional. Um, and if it is emotional, it's not because I'm trying to be like that for you, it's simply because this subject raises those questions. And so I kind of apologize in advance, that's not my intention, uh, but sometimes you just gotta go where the subject goes, and if that's where it goes, so be it. 
And also, um, final warning, <laughs> final health warning, I'm gonna be criticizing some beliefs tonight. And uh, the reason I criticize beliefs is because Jesus said that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And that means if truth sets you free, then the opposite of that does the opposite. And so sometimes the beliefs that we believe actually hold us back from the freedom that God has for us. And so I am gonna be criticizing one or two beliefs here and, and I'm doing so quite intentionally. If that kind of makes you a bit uncomfortable, can I just encourage you to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17? They, they searched the scriptures daily to see what the Apostle Paul was saying, whether it was true or not. And so I encourage you, whatever I'm saying, test it with the scriptures for yourself. Is that okay? All right. Excellent. So with that in mind, we're going to get into my message. It's entitled Prayer, Stake, and Snakes for reasons that will become obvious shortly. And uh, we are getting into it in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you? If your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. I'll stop right there. I'm allergic to fish. I can't eat fish. So I like to think of steak instead because I really love steak. So if he asks for steak, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. We've got to personalize the scriptures here. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is talking about prayer, and he says, ask, seek, knock. What do you think he's trying to say? He's inviting us to be bold in prayer. He's inviting us to persist in prayer, to keep persisting in prayer. P persisting in prayer is so incredibly important. Is there something that you have been praying about for quite some time? If there is, persist in it. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and the door will be open, Jesus says. So important. But it's also important to realize that one of the major barriers we have to persistent prayer is this, disappointment when prayers seem unanswered. I don't know if you've ever been disappointed at what seems like unanswered prayer, whether it's your own prayer or somebody else's. And I remember this, I, I learned this lesson, this painful lesson, uh, very young. In fact, I wasn't even a Christian at this time. Um, but when I was quite young, I, I used to be very faithful in prayer. Every night, I would pray, Lord, would you give Tottenham Hotspur Football Club victory? Would you give the England football team victory? I'm serious. I prayed diligently for my football. I'm, I'm from London, and so there's only one team in London. That's Tottenham Hotspur. And to all you Chelsea and Arsenal fans, the Lord loves you. He knows you're wrong, but he loves you. It's okay. So I used to pray so diligently for Tottenham Hotspur and England to win. And, and, you know, you're privileged to come from New Zealand where you're used to your team actually winning. <laughs> Unless you're a Warriors fan, God bless you, that's another story. <laughs> but I come from England, we're not used to that. So, although, man, do you see the rugby result? England scored eight tries against Ireland. Wow. Anyway, I digress. So I, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And I was just so disappointed. And I thought, man, this prayer thing's not working. I wasn't, I wasn't a Christian at this stage, and I was praying specifically. I think that they were the only things I prayed for, Tottenham to win, England to win. That was it. And so I was very confused. And, uh, and if I knew the Scriptures, I would have been even more confused because Jesus says very clearly, ask and it will be given to you. Well, I asked every day. It wasn't being given to me. I've since learned this, that God will always be true to his word, 
he will not be true to bad interpretations of his word. Can I get an amen? And so I've put that on your sheet for you, that God is always true to his word. He is not true to bad interpretations of his word. You can hold God to his word. You cannot hold him to bad interpretations of his word. And, and Jesus says, asking it will be given to you, this teaching on prayer in a context. What's the context? Matthew 7. Where does Matthew 7 come? It comes after Matthew 6. What happens in Matthew 6? Jesus teaches on prayer. He teaches something called the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may know it. And it starts with a Father in heaven, holy is your name. And then what comes after? Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So what Jesus is teaching there is not my will, but thy will. We don't preach from my will. You know, I don't pray, Lord, do what I want you to do. It's I pray, I pray that you would do what you want to do. And so when we have that clear, that we pray for his will, not mine. And then at the end of Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you. With all of that in mind, he then teaches, ask and it'll be given to you. So we've got to read it in context. We've got to read it in context. When we're praying, Lord, where's my Ferrari? You're, not, you're, you're being unfaithful, Lord. You're not answering my prayer. Whose will are we praying for here? Am I making some sense? So in terms of application, be careful in your praying. Don't be careless. Be careful in your praying. By all means, pray about all things. That's great. But pray according to the will of God. And then also be confident in your praying because when you are praying according to the will of God, ask and it will be given to you. Amen? All right. So this passage does raise some questions. It raises some questions in terms of this. Does God give stones when we ask him for sliced bread? Does God give us a snake when we ask for steak? It raises the question of unanswered prayer appears to be arbitrary. It appears to be arbitrary in terms of some of my prayers are answered and some are not. And I don't know which ones why. And some of your prayers may be answered and some of your prayers may not be answered. And you don't always know the answer as to why. And this is not just a theoretical thing. This can cut deep and get very real. And, and this is the emotional bit. And I'm only going there because this is the kind of stuff that really happens in life. Um, but what I'm about to say is a fictional example. Okay, it's a fictional example. It's not true. But imagine for a moment two little children. One is called Susie. One is called Johnny. Both have terminal sicknesses. Both have Christian families. The Christian families get around them, they pray for them, they fast for them, they believe for them. The church gets around them and prays for them and fasts for them and believes for them. And the outcome, Susie gets healed, praise God, and little Johnny dies. Fictional, I'm making this up, but this is the kind of thing that does happen. And it raises the question, why? Why did Susie get healed, praise God, and Johnny die? How are we to understand this? Do, do we understand that, that sometimes we ask God for steak, but he gives us a snake? Is that how are we to understand these things? Why did this happen? And what I want to do is to take you through the two most common answers given to that question and show you why both of them are wrong. And then I'm going to come to what I think is the truth. All right, so that's where I'm going. The first most common answer as to why little Susie got healed, little Johnny died, is because it was God's will. Everything happens according to God's will. Susie was healed because it was God's will. Johnny died because it was God's will. It's that simple. You pray, God, will you heal Susie? God says, sure. You, you pray, God, will you heal little Johnny? God says, no. And then sometimes we kind of add layers of Christianese on top of this. And we say things like, God knows what he's doing. Or we say things like, the angels must have needed little Johnny more than we did. Or... 
Or we'll say things like, God, God took him and we don't understand why, but his ways are higher than our ways. And, and, and the people who say these things are trying to be sincere and they're trying to be comforting. And for some people, it actually brings comfort. But for other people, it drives you nuts and it's really unhelpful. This views unanswered prayer simply as a matter of God saying yes or God saying no. Which means all unanswered prayer, according to this view, is God saying no. Lord, will you strengthen my marriage? No. Lord, would you look after my children and keep them safe? No. Lord, would you protect my family as they go on a plane journey? No. Do we really want to understand God's will in this way? Do we really want to understand unanswered prayer in this way? Lord, help me pass my exams? No. Lord, help me parent my kids really well? No. Lord, please provide food because my cupboards are empty? No. This view is a classic case of God giving a snake when we ask him for steak. And Jesus says God doesn't do that. Very clearly in Matthew chapter 7. What's quite disturbing is some Christians hold this view. And I want to submit to you, for your consideration, that this view is very Islamic, but it is not very Christian. It is a Muslim view, it is not a Christian view. What's interesting is, I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're like the four best books in the whole world ever, ever, ever. Oh my goodness, best books ever. You've got to read them. And if you've read them, read them again. They're so good. And when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're so good because you read about God coming in the flesh who changes everything. And when you read about Jesus and people come to him who are sick, you show me one instance in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where Jesus says no. You show me one instance where someone comes to Jesus with some need or other and Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. It's not there. Jesus isn't like that, which means God is not like that, which means it's not a case of God just saying no. Now imagine that you were actually there and you got to know Jesus in the flesh 2,000 years ago. How cool would that be? What we do have is we have the writings of his bestie, Jesus' best buddy. His name was John. It's a good name. My, one of my sons, his middle name is John. My dad's name is John. My grandpa's name is John. It's a good name, but we're moving on. I think Adam's actually a better name than Steve. Wouldn't you agree? It's a, just, you know, yeah. It's biblical. Come on. It's biblical, right? Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Where were we? Steve, you're distracting me now. So John, the bestie John, he describes God. He said, we've known what he's like. We've seen him. We've touched him with our own hands, he says in 1 John chapter 1. And then he says, how would you describe God? How would you describe Jesus? He says, I'll describe him this way. 1 John 1, 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all. There's no hint of evil. There's no hint of uncleanness. There's no hint of impurity. There's no hint of badness in any way. God is light. He's pure. He's good always. 1 John 1, 5. That's not in your notes. I just added it in. So make sure you chuck that one down. It's important. And then we often appeal to Romans 8, 28. Well, little Johnny died, but God's working for the good. And that's meant to be encouraging, but I don't find it very encouraging, particularly if you're little Johnny's dad. I wouldn't find that encouraging. What I think Romans 8.28 says this. It says, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, those are called according to his purpose. In other words, God doesn't will for bad stuff to happen. It's not what he wants to happen, but his hands are not tied. So even when terrible things happen, even in that situation, God will work to bring good out of it. That's what Romans 8.28 says. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So, so important. 
What I'm trying to say here is that if someone like a little Johnny dies of cancer or something horrible like that, what I'm trying to say is I don't think that's God's will. And that may raise a theological question for you. Hang on a minute. Are you saying that God's will is not always done? That's exactly what I'm saying. Let me show you in Scripture. Luke chapter 7, verse 30. The Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. God had a will for them. They said, no. Can we stop God's will? The Pharisees did for their life. Can we stop God's will for the whole creation? No, because we're not that big. But can we opt out for ourselves or affect God's will in some way, even a little way? Yes, we can. You see this over and over again in the Old Testament where God longs for his people to be faithful to him and God longs for them to live according to his design. And over and over again, they mess up. And, and so you read this in Isaiah 30 verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. You may be a parent here today thinking, are they talking about my kids? I don't know, but let's just keep reading. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. In other words, can we resist God's will? Yeah, the people of Israel did it all the time. They were really good at it. And you know what's really scary? When we read in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it says these things in the Old Testament were written down for our instruction. So as you read about Israel screwing up so spectacularly, you realise that that's written down as a lesson for us because we're probably worse than them. Oh dear. All right. And then to summarise the whole of the Old Testament, there's a guy called Stephen in Acts of the Apostles that he's described in Acts chapter 7 and, and chapter 6. He's a great man of faith. He kind of tells the story of the history of Israel and he tries to summarise it. And near the end of his summary, summarising the whole of the history of the people of Israel, he says this, you stiff-necked people. And he wasn't talking about people needing a physio. He was saying, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Can we resist God's will? Yeah. Is God's will always done? No. Why do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done. Because it's not always done. It's not done by default. We aggressively, we bring about the will of God through our actions and through our prayers. People can thwart God's will. It's a good word to try to sneak into a sermon, thwart. It's quite hard to pronounce, but thwart. Many other factors can thwart God's will as well. And so I want to suggest that it is wrong to conclude that little Johnny died because God willed it. I think the Bible says that's an illegitimate answer. That answer is wrong. If that's the first answer that's wrong, as I said, I'm sort of trying to deliberately poke some holy cows, some theological bubbles that I think are wrong because they constrict life rather than give you life. The second answer that I think is wrong is this. With enough faith, God's will will be done in my life. And, and, and this view does get right the picture of Jesus, mostly. It does get that right. It gets, it gets the idea that Jesus does want to heal. And, and when, when Jesus wants to heal and we bring faith to the body and healing happens, and that's awesome. So it does get something right. This view's not entirely wrong. But this view is actually very, very damaging. It says that you know, whether God's will happens or doesn't happen is entirely dependent on how much faith I have. If I have faith, God's will will be done. And if I don't have faith, it won't be done. 
And so if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick. If you have enough faith, your kids will never have genetic problems. If you have enough faith, no tragedies or accidents will happen to you. If you have enough faith, you'll never be in poverty. And so on and so on and so on. And that sounds lovely until stuff goes wrong in your life or someone else's. And if stuff goes wrong based on this view, you must conclude, I don't have enough faith. Or they don't have enough faith. Or someone doesn't have enough faith. Which basically means it's their fault. It's your fault. And this view blames the one suffering. So why was little Johnny not healed? His parents didn't have enough faith. You're blaming the parents for the loss of their son. The first answer blames God. The second answer blames the victim. And I'm not sure which is worse. They both do a great deal of damage. Now, this is a dangerous teaching and it is based on a partial truth. Here's the partial truth. Faith makes a big difference. Faith is important. You know, trusting God is essential. Jesus says in Matthew 9:29, according to your faith, be it unto you. Faith is crucial. Faith is important. There's no question. And this and other verses do not mean that faith is the only factor in what comes to pass. It is a factor in what comes to pass, not the only one. Because if it was the only one, then let's just say, for example, I've got, I've got friends and I've got family who don't know Jesus. Does that mean that if I have enough faith that, that, that they will be saved and God wants them to be saved as well, then it will happen irrespective of their free will? Do I really believe that with enough faith I can override someone's free will? I don't think that's true. I think faith is crucial. Faith is important. And praying by faith is essential. The prayer of the righteous man avails much, says James chapter 5. It's so important. But faith doesn't override every other factor. It is not the only factor in what comes to pass. So when a tragedy happens, you cannot automatically conclude that this was caused by somebody's lack of faith. To put it bluntly, how do you know? How do you know what level of faith they had? I can't see into their heart. Can you? It's, it's pretty judgmental to make that call, and it's, it's pretty mean too. And so, bottom line, if it's not God's will, if that's not the issue as to why little Susie was healed and little Johnny died, and if it's not necessarily a lack of faith, faith is important, it's just not the only factor. If it's not those two things, then what did happen? Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. pretty disturbing, eh? Have a vision and it shakes you so much that that's your response. Wow. So God gives Daniel a particular revelation. God gives Daniel a particular insight. Daniel presses in in prayer for three weeks to seek God. He fasts and prays to, to try to understand what's going on. Three weeks fasting, three weeks praying. I said this morning that uh, food is one of my love languages and it is which makes fasting one of my least favorite subjects. So we're just gonna move right along. So Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. After three weeks of praying and that F word that I don't like. <laughs> what were you thinking? Come on, naughty. 
Daniel says, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I've come in response to them. This is an angel speaking to Daniel. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, who is one of the chief princes, Michael's an archangel, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now, as you read Daniel 10, the most obvious question to ask is, what the heck is going on? This is really confusing. Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, Archangel Michael, huh? And what's going on is these are angelic beings. And, and, and what the angel's saying is, as soon as you started praying, Daniel, as soon as you started praying and fasting, I said the word, it's okay. As soon as he started pressing into God, God dispatched an angel. But, but the angel was prevented from coming to Daniel for that whole time until another angel came along and they got their big swords out and they were having this cool angelic fight. It'd be so cool to see. It'd be a bit scary, but really exciting. And then Michael managed to kind of free up the other angels. So the angel got through and then brought the message to Daniel who told Daniel what was going on. And, and this raises lots of theological and practical questions around angels and spiritual warfare and really interesting things. And what's also interesting is the Bible doesn't seem very interested in those details. It doesn't tell us a lot about them. And, and I think we are ob obligated to try to grasp and understand the things that the Scripture does teach. But then I also think we are to be disciplined and to not speculate too much about the things it does not teach. We're obligated to understand the things God has given us, not hasn't given us. So there's lots of questions about angels that I can't answer because the Bible doesn't answer. Anyway, it raises the question, Daniel experienced unanswered prayer for 20 days. After day 20, imagine some of Daniel's friends coming to him and saying, you know, Daniel's like, I just don't know why my prayers aren't being answered. I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm pressing in and there's just, there's nothing coming. What's going on? Some of Daniel's friends may have said, you know what? God doesn't want to answer your prayer. The Lord says, no, I'm not going to give you more understanding. Then imagine some of Daniel's other friends were like, Daniel, you're praying and fasting, but let's face it, you don't really have enough faith. And if you had more faith, then God would answer. Both of those friends would be wrong. Both of those friends would be wrong. And the only reason we know that they're both wrong in this particular instance is because an angel comes, explains what's going on, and kind of peels back the curtain of reality so we can see behind the scenes into the spiritual realm. It's a very complicated passage of Scripture and a really fun and interesting one, but thoroughly confusing as well. And so I think while there's lots of questions the passage of Scripture does not answer, here's what it does say. It says that the true reality, real life, is very mysterious, and there's a whole lot more going on than we can see. And every now and again, God may give us insight. And you know what? If you're a prophetic or an intercessory type, God may give you insight on a regular basis, and that's awesome. But you've got to realize that gift is not just for you. It's to serve the body. And so that, that's a beautiful, wonderful gift. But for most people, we don't get to see behind the curtain of reality too often which means we don't really know what's going on. We know God is good. We know we have to trust him and follow him. But as to exactly why some stuff is or isn't happening, we don't know. We're not told. We just know that reality is far more complex than what we can see. There are more factors at work than we can understand. One of them is spiritual warfare, but I think there's plenty of others as well. So God's will is not mysterious. We read God's will in the Gospels in Jesus. His will is not mysterious, but creation is mysterious. And so apart from special insight to answer the question, why was it that Susie got healed and Johnny died? Here's the answer. 
Apart from special insight from God, we can't know the answer to that question. We don't know. We don't know. And that may be unsatisfying, but just, just hold on a bit longer. I've still got a few minutes left. The Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. In other words, we don't know everything. There's secret stuff that we don't understand. It's not given to us to see that. We, we just see that which God enables us to see, and that's enough to roll with. And that's why 1 John 3 says that, that when Jesus appears, then we will see him, that then our faith will become sight and we will see. Until that day when Jesus returns, we live by faith, not by sight. So we don't have perfect sight. We can't see perfectly as to what's going on. God's will is not mysterious, but creation is mysterious. And therefore, we have to get comfortable with saying the words, I don't know. Can you say that with me? I don't know. And think about just about any fact 